Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and welcome in to the podcast for another episode. As always, appreciate you tuning in, otherwise I'm just screaming into the void. So um, so what would it be without you? Not much. And, uh, and I want to frame up this week's episode really straight away by mentioning where we've been and also where we're going. And so this year, if you've been listening along, I've been working through some different ways of thinking about God and God's relationship to the world. And I think this is valuable because often during people's rethinking of their faith, the big questions that come up for us or, or whatever we might uh, be wrestling with, I think what comes to the surface for a lot of people in this process is this idea of how we actually relate to God, if there is one, what we mean when we say God, and what that actually means for our real lives, not just sort of some kind of imaginary spiritual world, um, if you like, but our actual real lived experience. Can God really be known or not? How do we know what God is like or not? Does God respond to us or not? Does God answer prayers or not? Is God present and does that really mean anything? You know, these are some of the big questions that come up when we're thinking or rethinking notions of faith and of spirituality. And of course, different religious traditions have different answers to these questions. And as we've been discovering, even within something like the Christian tradition, there are a range of answers present within the tradition, or at least a range of responses uh, that are grappling with some of these questions. And so faith and spirituality and, and religion itself is not just a, a straightforward set of answers to these complex questions, but is in itself a tradition of journeying with these questions in light of what we know about ourselves and of the world that we live in, and perhaps of our experiences of the divine um, or what we perceive to be God. You know, uh, we are on a faith journey that's wrestling with all of that in an ongoing way. So rather than sort of arriving at some defined point where we can write all the answers down on a sheet of paper, we're engaged in this process of thinking through this stuff, not just because it's a fun thing to do, but because it actually really does have an impact on our lived experience of the world. So at the moment, what we're doing are a few episodes on Jesus, because I'll just, you know, if you're in the Christian tradition, then whatever it is we say about God and God's relationship to us and the world, we have to ask at some point what that means for our thinking about Jesus and where Jesus might or might not fit in that conversation. And, and so we're going to do that, and we are doing that at the moment. And in particular this year, I've been exploring or, or heading into a kind of panentheism in these episodes and unpacking what that might mean for our understanding of the fact that God is in and through the world and the world is in God. And, and then you have a, a relationship between God and world where the world affects God and God affects the world, right? So from this perspective, we're not talking about a God out there somewhere who intervenes from time to time, who sometimes sticks his finger in and says, how about I change that? Um, you know, we're talking about a God who is somehow much closer than that, a God who is in and through all things, which means that intervention is not really the best way to explain God's action or, or how God responds or interacts with reality, the idea that God comes in and breaks all the rules of nature to do supernatural things. You know, I don't, I don't think this is actually a particularly helpful idea. So what then does that mean for how we understand Jesus? You know, if, if, if Jesus is not God intervening in the world, jumping into human flesh exactly, and perhaps the ways that some of us have understood that in the past, are there other ways we could still make sense of this story and still say there's still something interesting and compelling and even unique about Jesus and that somehow from a Christian perspective, Jesus would give some kind of insight into God, into what God is like, and that God might be present in the Jesus story in a particular kind of way that's worth paying attention to, right? So 
In the last episode, Thomas J. Ord shared his perspective on a number of questions about Jesus that arise through maybe seeing God differently, right? And, and in this episode, I'm talking with another theologian, Trip Fuller. And Trip has just released a book on the subject of Jesus and of what we call in theology our Christology. And so I thought it would be great to pick his brains on a bunch of Jesus questions too. And uh, and so that's what this episode is focused on. Now, I should point out at this point that this conversation with Trip gets pretty theological, so do be prepared for that. And, and so if you're wanting a deeper dive into the Jesus conversation from a theological perspective, then this is a great episode for you, uh, a great conversation. I also want to say at this point that, that both Tom in the last episode and also Trip here talk about Jesus in ways that may not exactly fit with what you've heard before in the Christian tradition or the church, depending on what tradition you were brought up in or have come into or been immersed in or spent most of your time in. And so while I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting and insightful to be talking about Jesus in ways that to me are starting to make more sense for me, for some that also might be unsettling or even confusing. So stick with me because in the next episode, the one after this one, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what I think might be going on with Jesus and unpack some of why I think this might actually matter. You know, like why would we even care about this conversation and what do we do with it and what are the implications for the way we actually live our lives as we experience them, you know, rather than just thinking about a lot of things and about stuff that happened a long time ago that we might or might not know, right? So that's a little heads up about the context for this episode and also where I'll be taking it forward into the next one. So I guess for now, all that's left to say is this is episode 39 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So I am here with uh, Trip Fuller, and uh, Trip is a postdoctoral research fellow in theology and science at the University of Edinburgh and received his PhD in philosophy, religion, and theology at Claremont Graduate University and is the founder and host of the Homebrewed Christianity podcast, very popular show, of course, and uh, one of my favorites, and is the author of a new book all about Jesus and Christology, and it's titled Divine Self-Investment, an Open and Relational Constructive Theology. So welcome, Trip. So good to have you on the podcast. Awesome. Excited to be here. Ready um, to get shifty. Yeah, that's exactly right. Get deep in the shift. Uh, well, before we dive maybe into the into the theological work uh, and and some of your Christology, um, are you able to give a bit of a summary or a sense of your own journey into life as a theologian? How did you land in theology? Was this something you you grew up you know you grew up mm. playing with the theology toys when you were a kid, or you? Uh, well, how did you find your way into it? <laughs> I, I don't know if I played with theology toys, but I definitely started reading. Uh, theology philosophy pretty young my parents were church planters and were really good at affirming and giving permission to ask questions and wrestle with things so when i would have a good question i would usually get a book recommendation so in middle school i read most of the like c.s lewis books and then in high school got into bonhoeffer and kierkegaard and um you know the uh, paul tillich sermons and then uh, read my first historical Jesus book then and that kind of thing. So like the intellectual quest and theological wrestling for me is a, an intimate part of my piety. And 
you know, I know some people when they ask questions or doubt or something like it's a huge struggle about their, like, you know, where do I belong here and all that kind of stuff. For me, it's an energizing thing. Um, and, and has been because unlike, I know a lot of people I've discovered questions, doubts, those types of things were, you know, to be silenced, repressed, fixed, remedied with a good apology, you know, apologetic work or something. And, you know, I, I just, I would ask questions and it wouldn't be until I've thought about it and wrestled with it myself that I would really ever even get specific answers from my mom or dad. So I would say it started there. Mm. And then uh, I was a theater and philosophy major in undergrad when I started because I love musical theater and improv and all that kind of stuff. Um, Neither one of those degrees are known for employability. (laughs) Uh, And I started volunteering with a youth group while I was an undergrad, leading worship with a campus ministry group and, you know, kind of backed into being a minister, even though I just thought, I didn't want to be one because that's what the family rule was. Yes. And uh, and then I've been a minister. I mean, my wife and I are both ordained Baptist ministers. Uh, I've worked in Disciples of Christ, UCC congregations as well. Um, now, this is my f- third or fourth year of full-time primarily in a academic context. Okay. But uh, I miss being in a church. Mm. And, you know, when I haven't worked at one, I've been like the over-aggressive volunteer that most ministers are always looking for. (laughs) They're like, so I don't have to use vacation to take a week off because I'll just let Trip do it. And he's just like, yeah. Or they need someone to say something more aggressive. They're like, well, let's let Trip do it. And then I'll do the kinder, nicer version. So, um, yeah, I guess like um, the thing to get in the – theological questions and stuff in the book is that they are they're also personal and confessional for Mm. me in ways that you know not all scholars of any discipline or even theologians always have it's so interesting because in 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 my circles growing up as a as a pentecostal kid uh, and then becoming like a a a mega church guy for however many years uh when i was in my 20s um the idea that you could enter into conversations like this without having to unravel uh, a bunch of stuff uh, just sounds so intriguing to me. You know, how do you come at these questions without the layers of um, of baggage that that I and so many of the people that I know kind of are, are wrestling through? It's, um, it sounds nice. I mean, I think there there's definitely different benefits for whatever tradition you come out of mm. um, has different blessings and curses, you could say. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's true. And there are things I'm grateful for, of course, from my tradition as well. Um, so in your in in this work you've just published in Divine Self-Investment, you talk about approaching Christology from, from the perspective of open and relational theology. So that's before we jump into some of the chat specifically about Christ. If you could scope up uh, for us, what you're meaning when you when you talk about open and relational theology, because I think that gives us then some ground to go into to more of the discussion yeah, about, yeah. So, about Christology. Um, so open and relational theology is a kind of a broad uh, collection of different particular schools of thought uh, in the academy. Uh, and the, but the things that all the theologians in the open and relational network hold, hold in common is that um, the world uh, impacts God 
and God impacts the world. So there's this dynamic reciprocal relationship, uh, and and that leads to uh, an open future, right? Like mm-hmm. the relationships are really real, and what really happens shapes what could happen in the next moment. Um, and, uh, and and so the future is known as future, not as settled um, script to be read and performed at some point. Um, and, and, and that things are ultimately relational. And underneath that is that those are intrinsic elements of a God of love. So um, open, relational, God is love is uh, are kind of the three um, big parts. Um, and, and I think that the... Uh, there's different entry points in open and relational theology, but a, a lot of them are questions around religion and science. Others get there because of the problem of evil and suffering um, and the, the kind of traditional doctrine of God has. And I know Tom Ward has been on the podcast before mm-hmm. and talked about that. Um, and it, it, But the question of Jesus for me, became fascinating as to like, if you take this framework, which is usually talked about like how God relates to creation and all this kind of stuff, then what does it look like to take that framework and wrestle with um, the new Testament testimonies about Christ, uh, the contemporary theology and the way it wrestles with the historical Jesus or religious pluralism. How do you understand the Jewishness of Jesus and his own life and, 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 and that type of thing. Uh, so this book is intentionally engaging um, very influential contemporary Christologies that aren't open and relational. Mm. And then you setting up pairs of dialogues with open and relational thinkers. Uh, and each of those pairings sets up my larger kind of constructive argument through it. Um, and, and the goal is really to introduce the open and relational perspective to a larger portion of the academy. Um, and to give a constructive engagement for people in uh, the church and clergy and people that are that come from an open relational perspective, what is it? What does that voice sound like when it's engaging other uh, contemporary scholars? Mm, great. I think one of the interesting things, I suppose, is that as people that I know have kind of been wrestling through their faith and their views of God have changed over time, right? So they, um, many people have been handed this. Like the God world relationship, right? Where where God is is distinctly other, and and in a sense outside the system largely, mm-hmm. um, and then who who sort of jumps in here and there either to as a Pentecostal, you know, comes down to give you a a good uh, good meeting, um, or or jumps in to do miracles and, and things like that. And, and when that through for whatever reason breaks starts to break down for people, whether it's crisis or prayers that are unanswered and stop making sense or whatever it is that, that causes people to start to question some of those aspects. Their view of God can evolve and change to sort of broaden and open up. But then mm-hmm. you're left with this question of what do you do with Jesus then? Because Jesus seems like such a particular story grounded in such particular kind of faith claims in the Orthodox sort of Christian tradition um, mm-hmm. that that conversation, I think, becomes difficult for people. And so you end up with these sort of on on the ground level, at least what I see is either having, you know, holding to the sort of Jesus, um, is God coming down from heaven to earth? And you've got that kind of, you know, we used to sing a song, you came from heaven to earth, you know, to show the way. So that's that very much that, that model of Jesus. Or if you become uncomfortable with that, then you're left with the, well, Jesus seemed like a good guy, 
But but is there anything really to sustain a kind of Christian faith that's left after mm. all of that? So part of that's why I'm I'm so um, excited about your work and interested to to see um, what kind of impact it has on the conversation for people. Can you perhaps outline what you see as some of the problems with Christ, that Christology has run into in, in recent times, perhaps that you're then trying to help get us past? Because um, I think there are there are different schools of thought around Christology, but all of them seem to be bumping into a, their own kind yeah. of problems. So I guess there are two types of problems. Uh, some are problems that have to do with our current historical moment, and then there are the problems that uh, you know necessitated theologians doing Christology to begin with, right? And so like for the first one, like we have four canonized gospels, right? And Paul has a bunch of letters and then there's some others. But like even in the New Testament, if you ask the two big questions around Christology, um, it's usually called the person and the work of Jesus mm-hmm. in really nerdy books. But the person's like, how's the humanity and divinity related? Well, if you ask just that one question in the Bible, you're going to get at least six answers. Right. Um, but, you know, if you just think of the four Gospels, uh, well, when was Jesus divine? Well, Mark begins with a baptism and the spirit descends. And you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Um, then you get Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke are like, Mark, that's pretty good material. We're going to borrow it, right? Like when they constructed the text. Um, but... Uh, now, Jesus is more hardcore than that. We get to get more divinity up in this piece. Uh, how about virgin conception? Check them facts. Now, if you look at where Jesus is born and all that kind of details, they don't necessarily line up uh, if you wanted to put them on a graph or something. But if you ask like the divinity question, like uh, the origin of that divinity is not the baptism. It's from day one, like day one conception. And then the gospel of John comes along. As the, it's the newest gospel in the New Testament. And John's like, <laughs> Look at you, silly three. That ain't nothing. How about this? In the beginning. And uh, the word was with God. The word was God. All things came into being through this. All light, life, and love, the word. And it became Sarks and Jesus. So basically, all the cool shit throughout all of cosmic history, the development and everything, that whole process. What's it look like? Jesus, what, can y'all handle that? You know, in and then you you go like, oh well, well what's Paul going to do with this? Paul in Romans goes, well, he was born in the line of David, and he was resurrected in the spirit into the life of God. And then you're like, what was he not even really like divine and the son of God till after the resurrection, or was it the baptism, or was it a conception, or was it from all eternity? And then the church is like, good question. Let's canonize all of them. Right. <laughs> right. And so then the church is ongoing, had these questions to wrestle with. And the whole time they're wrestling with it, they're also in communities where you're called the body of Christ, where you baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, where you say, this is my body, this is my blood. And they go like, well, when we say those things and we encounter God, we can't talk about God without talking about Jesus. So we can't just say Jesus is a human. Yes, he was a human. He's not. We're not like some Gnostics. We we know we come from Jewish roots. We love material. We love bodies. So yeah, both and, right? And then they're sitting there in this all these texts and these people. But everybody's trying to say Jesus is the Christ. And then you go, well, what does that mean? And then they tell you their testimony, and they don't all line up. 
Right. And the church was like, yes, canon. And yes, we baptize them in this name. And yes, we serve them this meal. And then you're like, could you explain it? And they go, well, am I a Platonist or I'm Aristotelian? Um, you know, like their philosophy yeah. background. Yeah, yeah. So in the tradition, Christology has these questions. Um, if you get to the other part of Christology, the work, what God did in Christ, um, you, you know, there's there's so many understandings of the atonement, like what God did in Christ. You get the ransom theory. You you get satisfaction theory. You get Christus Victor theory. You get moral influence theory. You get so the, in in the if you even look at the creeds, the creed says. Uh, you know, crucified, raised, forgiveness of sin. It doesn't tell you how. It just yeah. says it works, right? And I think right. um, more charismatic traditions would understand this, uh, you know, more than traditions with that have creeds, right, where your particular interpretation goes on top of the creed. Like the, the experience that your encounter with God's mediated by Jesus and you live in the light of the Spirit, you're like, I understand that. Now I'm trying to read these texts and use my brain and engage the world so that the actual lived experience in the body of Christ coheres with my intellectual reflections. Like I want to work that out, but you don't have to explain to me it's real. Um, and, and I think that those though that story all is just within the Christian tradition. Mm. Um, if you go outside of it, what are the questions of our moment? Then you ask again, uh, and, and here's an, an uh, image I've been wrestling with and using in the next book. If if you don't tell me it sucks, <laughs> it sucks not going in there. But um, you, for most of church history, where imagine sitting in a beautiful cathedral. And now that I get to hang out in one a lot here in the UK, old cathedrals. You go inside, uh, you look around. You're basically back in you know 15th century, mm. something like that. You look on the walls. And they're beautiful art. You get stained glass windows. If you just go around, if you know the stories as a Christian, you can tell the whole biblical story just looking at the walls. You're in a space that's structured to give you the Eucharist and the liturgy and all these types of things. For most of church history um, in Christendom, uh, everyone that was born into the life of the church never left the metaphorical cathedral. Mm. The story of Christianity we experienced all light flooding into our lives where everything meaningful and beautiful happened was coming through these stained glass windows where the story of God lit up the room and touched us and embraced us, encounters us. And, and, and yet I can leave the cathedral. When I go on the other side of the stained glass window, it looks like a child had a bunch of Crayola crayons ate them and threw up. You can't tell what the, uh, what the picture is, right? And today, a lot of our questions come because theologians and Christians have an encounter with the living God mediated by Jesus in the sanctuary where these symbols, signs, stories, rituals function to give this deep encounter. And we also live in a world where we can look at it and go, well, historically, I see the development of this. Scientifically, we have all these questions. Have y'all noticed that there are buildings with other religious traditions build and it does animate their life in beautiful ways? So like things like this, that there's a, 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 a different cosmological picture, religious pluralism, historical criticism of scripture and the Bible, all these types of things give uh, a whole another host of questions. In the tendency 
is to either defend, uh, and the more conservative option is to defend things from within the sanctuary and insist that on your terms you can settle those questions mm. on the outside, or more liberal theologies um, uh, accommodate more of kind of dominant Western secular uh, reason and then try to see how much under secular Western reason can I say about Jesus? And that's where you end up with that, oh, he's a good bloke. Right. I think he's great. Like, he's like Greenpeace, but with Jewish language around yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so so, Christology, I think, tries to wrestle with both of those questions. That That's really the challenge of the book. That's great. I, I, think, um, I think when you're immersed in that kind of cathedral, right, um, and that's all you've known, it becomes and 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 you've experienced something profound and meaningful there, but you've been told, if you like, as well as a part of that, that this is this is the cathedral where that happens, and mm-hmm. what we're describing to you is how it is, and and yes, and then you step outside the cathedral uh, for whatever reason it might be, and some people never do, some people still never really step outside the cathedral, mm-hmm. uh, but when you do, this other host of questions suddenly come rushing to the surface. And I think um, that's where a lot of people find themselves in many respects. They don't know what to do with this experience they've had that seems meaningful to them, this encounter, if you like, to use that language they've had, mm-hmm. that, that still seems meaningful to them. And you're all of these questions that don't seem to make any sense of that experience or that experience doesn't help them answer those questions. Um, and I think that's very much true when it comes to the to the Jesus conversation. You know, even growing up as a Pentecostal where you'd think it's all sort of experience of the spirit kind of language but it's but it's a jesus centered piety uh it's it carries that kind of evangelical you know personal relationship with jesus knowing jesus encountering jesus worshiping jesus and that's so central to the notion of what it is to be christian that then to then ask more probing questions of that conversations can seem unsettling or or difficult and and i think it is it's easier in fact even at the ground level without going to liberal um, theological school to just to just go, you know what, it's just easier to say Jesus was just a great guy. Um, mm-hmm. you, in, in, so, no, yeah. you know, one of the one of the things that or, or here's the reason why I I mean and I tried doing that, you know, personally, is uh, it, it to me it's like uh you know those really bad romantic comedies where this, you, you, this couple like falls in love and then they break up and there's like trying to work it out with someone else. And they realize like, no, no, no. Like this is the person I really, really love. Right. And you have to decide that you had messed up that this is the person you really want to be with. And for whatever, like maybe your friends all think she's crazy or dumb or whatever, or you made a fool of yourself and you really have to own your mistake or whatever the reason is uh, for me intellectually. Like uh, I just realized I didn't, uh, what was getting itself done in the cathedral of my life uh, was intrinsic to who I was and I wasn't, didn't want to live without it. Mm. And so then there was this question of what do you do, right? Some people, uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says it, you know, some people spend their whole life once they put the head outside of the cathedral uh, going, running back in and I'm going to believe still. Right. I, was, I still believe. And they said others go outside and then in, in embracing those questions and challenges come to uh, believe again. Mm. And, 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 you know, it's not like 
after you've had hardship and that euphoria of early relationship and in love and you've been married a while and all this type of things like it, it, it's not like you you can't still be in love but it's not the same thing there's that naivete is not there mm. in the same way but that doesn't mean you don't have a deeper appreciation for those moments of true embrace and encounter and playfulness and all that kind of stuff. But you also know uh, having wrestled and, and and deeply with it um, that, that it doesn't just exist because you're hiding from reality in the world. And Mm. and so this, like I couldn't leave it behind. And so this book and, and (laughs) actually my Second and third book are all Jesus books. So uh, I, I've written a lot about Jesus. Yeah. Um, it, it is really because I want, uh, you know, I don't think everyone has to, but I really want those who have uh, been blessed by their experience of God through Christ to think intellectually, there's, you know, it's worth keeping around. Mm. And because when Jesus just becomes a moral teacher or a nice guy or whatever, I, I think it undercuts the real demand that comes in discipleship. Uh, and, and I think the world needs communities of people who, um, you know, aren't just looking towards doing good based on the assumptions they have about the world. Uh, um, but, you know, coming from a deeper reservoir with a more radical vision. Right. And I think yeah. uh, Jesus does that. Um, so in talking about Jesus then, if, if we're going to try and find a way to say that there's something um, perhaps unique going on in Jesus, uh, I think that's there's a, there's a Christian kind of claim of that, right? Um, but what is that uniqueness from your perspective? If, um, if we're not going to say that sort of Jesus floated down from, from heaven and jumped into the, jumped into the womb, I mean, you you might want to say that, but from reading your, your book, I don't. I don't I'm think you want to say that. I'm not a jumper. <laughs> You're not. Not. Uh, but but we still want to hold to this idea that there's something unique going on here with Jesus uh, and and the history of God in the world. How do you how do you get at that kind of uh, uniqueness? What do you want to say mm-hmm. there? So, um, you know, there's a number of different images for it in Scripture. Now, there are big metaphors or images that run through. And so um, in the book, I spent a chapter looking at Christologies that are based on um, the notion of the spirit as the way of understanding the unique way Jesus person works out the relationship with divinity and humanity. And there's a chapter on the Logos, the word of God, eternal word. Um, uh, and But I also pick up throughout the book a number of uh, images from early church songs, like so, songs that get quoted in the New Testament. Uh, and and they and why I pick them out is because if you're quoting something in the first 30 or 40 years of the church life, when you, in a letter, you one probably think the other people know what it is. Because I think we've all, as uh, uh, ministers, been in the room where you're quoting a song lyric only to realize that no one in the room knows that song (laughs) or they're like looking at you and they're like, he's doing what? Like, I mean, even earlier when you gave the example of a line from uh, the uh, uh, Lord, I lift your name on high. Yes. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. Uh, um, Like if you don't know that song and you just like said the lines, right? Like if you didn't say it's a song, 
and uh, then it'd be it get weird. Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's plenty of people if they all know it, then you can bring it up. Yeah. Like one of Barack Obama's most powerful speeches was at a funeral, and then he pauses and goes and starts to sing, uh, you know, half sing, half say, "Amazing Grace." Mm. And everyone knows all that's contained in that song, right? Mm. It comes up. So, so two of them, you know, briefly that I talked to in the book about, or is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, and if you look at that image and then think as an open and relational theologian, um, uh, like, yeah, so God doesn't have a body, right? Like, it's not like God's here and God's not here. Right. In, in, in some way, um, most open and relational theologians are panentheists, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like a fun word for um, the Hebrew Bible is right and you shouldn't Hellenize it. That's no, a, <laughs> a theological joke. Um, that like all of the world is included within God, but God is uh, more than the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, but like God is where we live, move, and have our being. Uh, it's Paul quotes in, uh, in Acts. So, if it, it, so, God doesn't have a particular local body, um, but if God, if all the world is taking place in God and the future is open, then God does have a desire for the world moment to moment, like in each moment, in whatever way a different creatures can respond with whatever agency they have. God has desire for it, for the more beautiful, just, loving thing. And so, if you want to know what it's like for the invisible God who has a desire each moment to become visible. Then you have to ask yourself, uh, is the entity you're talking about faithful? Are they being faithful to God's desire? Because if they're being faithful, then they're embodying, fleshing, making visible uh, the heart of God uh, in that context, in that moment. Uh, and, and you can see Jesus picking up on this language in the Gospel of John. Um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm. If you abide in me. You see that you get this type of and that's a different way of getting at that same image that's in the Colossians hymn. But uh it, so as an open relational thinker, I want to say, then what would it mean for Jesus to be distinctive as an image of the invisible God? So much so Christians from the very earliest of the church didn't answer the who is God question without telling the story of Jesus. Right. And the same is true of me, right? Like I have that problem. Mm. Like, I don't know how to do this separate. Um, so how would you do that? Then, and I think, I remember in youth group, most of the time when they talked about how Jesus was so perfect, they're explaining to me how he was sinless. Mm. Oh, he, he wasn't a baddie. He was a goodie, you know, all the time, just walking around. He never had a boner. He didn't curse. Uh, probably was a upper middle class Republican in <laughs> first century Judaism. Uh, like, you know, these type of things, right? Like yeah. it, it, it gets, it, it's precisely by not being sinful like you, they can be human and perfect. Mm. And, and that's a kind of boring, bad anthropology. Uh, it's like it didn't read the first two chapters of Genesis, starts with the third. Um, but if you think of it in that relational dynamic, that every moment God's desire happens, then what does that imaging mean? It means that you're faithful. And I, if you don't take that negative image, sinlessness, but the positive image, faithfulness, then what if the, the image of the invisible God means that the invisible God's desire was actually perfectly imaged because Jesus was fully faithful to God? 
And so when you encounter Jesus, you saw a human who was being fully human. And what was he doing with his full humanity? He was being fully faithful to God. So when you saw this man, you also saw the heartbeat of God, or you could say the image of the invisible God, or you could say the word of God made flesh. Why? Right. Because he was so alive, he was expressing something that we on our best days occasionally lapse into. And he didn't just express it. He actually invited us to participate in it. So one of the other songs in the New Testament that I latch onto is the hymn in Philippians 2, one of the oldest letters of Paul, mm. um, where, he, where he looks, he's talking from a jail, writing a letter into the church in Philippi and says, let the same mind be in you that is in Christ Jesus. So, and then he quotes a song they all know. And what is he saying? That uh, the same mind is, is an invitation to participation, right? Like he's about to say, what I'm saying about Jesus is something we're all, y'all, it's the second person plural in the Greek, are invited into. And then he says, who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, you know, even a death on a cross. Mm. And the, in the word, the fun word there is kenosis. Yes. Um, and, and so what is that faithfulness of Jesus? It is this self-giving or self-emptying love where his own subjectivity makes space for the gift of a new self from God or something like that, right? Like in his full fidelity to God, saying, yes, my, my will but thine be done, all the way to the cross. He comes to express perfectly the fusion of a human will and the divine will in such a way that the early church would sing songs calling themselves to participate in it, right? And you can see how those, I mean, they're obviously open and relational interpretations of them. Um, I, there are plenty of biblical scholars that would say that's much more uh, accurate than a lot of, say, Calvinist or Thomist interpretations of those mm. texts, but it, I think that kind of gets at, um, you know, what I'm doing in the, in the book, is saying, you know, how can you take this larger theological vision that tons of people have worked out wrestling with the questions around science and pluralism and stuff, and then try to wrestle and interpret uh, the the theological uh, tradition. Right. So there's this. Um, if we're going to talk about something that's distinctive or unique about Jesus, in a sense, it's this unique faithfulness and fidelity to God's desire for humankind. Uh, so much so, uh, from what I'm hearing you say and from from reading the book, that there's this fusion, if you like, of, of God's will and the will of Christ. You say at one point, I think, the divinity of Jesus is understood as, well, I'm going to read it. I'm, not, I'm going to pretend I was, I was just going to pretend I'm just, you know, off the top of my head going to quote from your book, but, but I do have it here. Uh, the divinity of Jesus is understood as an emergent identity from a definitionally natural relationship God has with all humans. So is this, for you, this, is this an idea that all humans at some level have the potential to participate with God or that um, God is so present, particularly present in, in the life of Jesus in a way that's kind of unrepeatable and yet we're still called to participate in it. Can you, can you kind of well, talk yeah, about yeah. that? Well, yeah, yeah, so I guess there's two elements. One is, you know, depending on what part of the church you're in, the idea that you come to participate in the life of God in the way Jesus did isn't striking, right? Mm, so yeah. the Eastern church, the Orthodox church, talks about deification. Mm. But like that one comes to share in that type of unity with God is not a relativizing of the work of God in Christ. Um, it's precisely 
that God gave God's self to the world and the world received it through uh, the incarnation and the person of Jesus, that we then come to participate. And so one of the images I use in the book about that is uh, there's a type of weak participation in God just as image bearers of the divine. But there's a strong participation of God um, when the infinite becomes finite uh, and, and there's this type of fusion. Uh, you also see in say the the holiness tradition or wesleyan tradition the image of you know where perfection is a possibility for sanctification in the catholic church like what a saint is is someone whose fidelity right with a different vocation than the messiah of jesus but in their vocation in their context their own fidelity in life becomes a window into the heart of the divine mm. so you become a saint so i i say like sometimes i think we uh, minimize the participatory language in different parts of the church, in parts of the gospels. I mean, Jesus and John says, you'll do greater things than me. Mm. But it's not because you, he's, he's unimportant. It's because he said, like, if you abide in me and I in you, right? Like, he, mm. he's like, you're going to do greater things just because I'm just me. But when the body of Christ multiplies and becomes to include different people, different experience, different context, amazing different things can happen. It's, I, I say all that just to go like – sometimes that question comes from a place that doesn't recognize just how um, open, uh, in a sense, the tradition already is. Mm, but mm. an open and relational theology is wanting for the incarnation not to be a divine invasion, but – that when I use the language emergent, that it that it is the fruit of God's ongoing investment in history, and so um, I emphasize in the book that you know what happens in the biblical narrative after the Tower of Babel, right? Prior to that, everyone using the same language, and they go, "We should build a tower, take God out," and God's like, "Try multiple languages," you know, and boom. And after that, God doesn't do, let me talk directly to everybody mm -hmm. anymore. In the biblical narratives, God chooses to covenant with Abraham and Sarah. And there God says, I'm going, you're going to, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will bless you. And as you receive my blessing, you'll bless others. And through your blessing of the world, the world will come to know me. And the Kazakh covenant. And the covenant uh, is the context for understanding the history of Israel, the prophets and uh, you know, kings and all that kind of stuff. Uh, exile and return, all these things happen in the context of a covenant. And over time, you get more and more clarity about the heart and desire of God, right? So if you're born in the sixth century and you're in Hebrew school, they're going to tell you about Micah. Well, once you've met Micah and Amos, then you have a different relationship to your religious practice than you did prior. Because mm. they're just like, look, yes, you're going to go to you, – you, we have the temple. We're going to do these things. But I, if you're taxing the poor on the Sabbath, you suck. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Right. So there's this collective wisdom. Yeah. And it's in the context of a cho God's investment in a people. Um. And so when it goes to the person of Jesus, if we're thinking in that relational framework, that uh, fidelity to God moment to moment is his perfect fidelity, his full faithfulness then reveals the faithfulness of God, the Hesed uh, covenant nature of God, then 
um, for for me, I want to say the incarnation, this imaging of the invisible only happens because he is inheriting God's self-investment in that whole history. That Jesus doesn't come in a vacuum. He comes in a context. In that mm. context, the past that he inherits is not a benign past. It is a past that bears the, the fingerprints of God and covenantal partner pushing back and forth over each other. And so it's in that context that his fidelity and his vocation as the Christ takes place. And so it is an emergent identity, but it's not emergence as if that happens apart from God. Mm. That whole trajectory is the fruit of God world relationship. Then nested in that is God's covenantal relationship. And then nested in that is God's canonic relationship in the person of Jesus. And it's in that fusion of God's self-investment that we come to participate in uh, the, the body uh, of Christ. Right. So you, you talk a lot about how, how, you know, it's God's history with Israel that really makes Jesus' faithfulness possible, right, um, in, the, in the way that it unfolds in his particular story. Um, and so, the, yeah, this idea of what Jesus is able to be and do is, is fruit, right? It's the fruit of this history of God with Israel. If we, if we think about that as this very particular story then, one of the other things you talk about is how that, because I think that particularity then for people has become this very exclusivist kind of particularity, right? So because God is revealed in the story of Israel and then in the person of Jesus, that becomes then a, a religious silo which you have to enter and it becomes quite exclusivist. Your your eternal salvation is dependent on you getting into this story, into the particulars of this story. So how do you see this kind of the particularity of the of the story of Israel and then of Christ not confining us uh, and the work of God to only that story but is able to hold the tension of God's particular work in that story and in Christ but also the, the idea that uh, God's relationship to the world extends beyond that story? Mm-hmm. Okay, so two things. The first that pops in my mind is, um, you know, there are different types of truth and if you confuse one for the other, then you think that having an allegiance to it just turns out looking ugly if you get the type of truth mm. wrong. So what what's the difference between a true uh, poem that you wrote for a person you love and a true uh, syllogism or a mathematical equation, mm. right? Like you can explain both. Right? Like, I'm like, look, come on, come on. Don't get shifty with me. There's Pythagoras. A squared <laughs> plus B squared equals C squared. It's called a triangle. You know, you, like, you could do something like um, and And I sit there and try to explain it to you. And eventually there's this concept that exists in, uh, it, conceptually. And then you kind of figure it out. And you're like, ah, it is true. And I was wrong before. Thank you geometry teacher <laughs> right but if i if if i like take that same approach towards trying to convince you that i love uh my partner alicia or my children or something like that right i'm like laying it out you're like trip why why do you love alicia and i start explaining it to you and uh and and you're like huh what 
I guess I should uh, get her phone number because uh, this truth obligates me, obviously, to also, you know, like that doesn't sure. happen. That, you know, that, it doesn't happen. You hear it and you go, ah, I, I, I love someone deeply. And when I hear you describe your love for her, I, I go, that's true. And then there's this thing that's going on to me. And when we talk about someone, your love for a partner, no one thinks it's weird to say that it can be really deep love and you don't even understand yourself apart from it. And yet you only met that person because you accidentally chose for whatever reasons to go to the same high school or same college or you met each other at this job or like, you know, or we're swiping right. Um the accidents of history also become, when they become part of your narrative, the grace points of existence. And if, if it's a love story, if it's this deep subjective encounter of the self, you don't have to uh, uh, walk around like it's a syllogism demanding everyone else have it. Mm. Right? And just think of how that shows up in Christology. Um, some people think that to call Jesus Lord means – that when you meet your friends and they don't use it, they you have to pull out that little uh, C.S. Lewis uh, trick move, you know. Well, I, I, you're starting to doubt. I mean, Jesus is either a liar, mm -hmm. a lunatic, or a lord, right? Right. And you don't want to tell me that the one I, I I love deeply is a crazy. Like you're gonna say that to me. You're gonna lose my friend. You're gonna you're gonna tell me he's a liar, huh? Huh? You know, like yeah. there's like no. So obviously he's Lord. You know, underneath that is like the problem that uh, is, is horrible understanding of New Testament studies. But but you see underneath it, it is what is the Christological question? Is getting the answer right? Your mm. Jesus is Lord. When you read the New Testament, it's like one demons get it correct. Right, and two, the disciples do. Right, Peter says uh, when Jesus goes, you know, who do people say I am? He gives off all these answers. You know, Elijah come back. Mm -hmm. um, John the Baptist got his head back on. Uh, you know, these type of things. Uh, today there are all sorts of historical uh, accounts of Jesus. A wandering cynic sage is what mm. the, the numbers of Jesus seminar, or an apocalyptic prophet. There are so many ways you could talk about just the objective things we can figure out about Jesus and what they mean and such. Um, and they can be more or less right and more or less persuasive. And maybe we'd get all the facts at some point and have an interpretation. But uh, then Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you were the Christ, son of the living God. And after that, Jesus does not say, well, Peter, thank you. The evidence demanded that verdict is <laughs> obviously to be concluded. And you must have been paying attention to Isaiah 53, 5, because I'm going to go to the cross and by these stripes, you're healed, fool. You know, he doesn't think that this is necessary, an obvious conclusion. Yeah, right. And he's freaking hanging out with him. Mm. You know, this is the guy that walked on water. It's not immediately obvious. Okay. So uh, and then what does Peter do? He journeys with them, right? But the moment you get to the uh, in the middle of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the um, uh, transfiguration in the text that says he turns to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus. Mm. They're going down the mountain, and Peter's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, we're going to Jerusalem. And Peter's like, whoa, uh, you know they're going to kill you there, right? And then what does he say? Get behind me, Satan, right? 
James and John, other disciples, you're the Christ. You're awesome. And they're like, hey, when you come in your kingdom, could we sit on your left and right? And Jesus is like, what is your deal? I, I thought I've been clear. You know you're signing up for a cross, right? Like, he's like, you don't know what you're asking for. See, the question in the Gospels isn't um, what is the correct label to put on Jesus. It's not the form of your answer. It is the content of that answer. What does it mean for him to be the Christ? And throughout it, he deconstructs the popular religious answers. Mm -hmm. He deconstructs the popular political answers, moving against images that show up in Caesar and political power. And he deconstructs his own disciples' answers. But they come to understand it because they've chosen to give themselves to the way of Jesus, to be in this community and to journey with him. Um, and I think the Christological question is, today is for us not to argue and try to prove the label, but for us to push back on ourselves. Where, where have we, like Peter, James, and John, we got great company, projected our own desires for God, that the one who chooses to face down the powers, even unto death, faithful to God in the face of imperial, perverse religion and such, um, where have we projected values and then named them as the Christ? Mm. Let's challenge it. So to me, I think that's a lot of what is uh, going on there. So, Yeah, it's, um, you know, Jesus in many respects, I think having been reduced down to um, essentially death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins so you can go to heaven. When Jesus is reduced down to that story right which does become very exclusivist because it's the mm. it's it's the little gateway to get through and you've got to say the right formula um, about Jesus to get through that little narrow gate then Jesus himself does become kind of a, a very flexible mascot that you can then place yeah. anything else on that you want and I think about a lot of my own spirituality um, was very much like that you know it was Jesus was the one I sort of cheered for and um, and got excited about. Uh, even if I didn't really know much at all about what Jesus really stood for or what Jesus was really interested in and the way that he was challenging power structures and religion. You know, I was I was more like, woo, Jesus. Uh, and then then I could make Jesus really be on my side for, for whatever I wanted um, mm-hmm. as long as I knew I had the heaven thing locked down. So this idea that that following Jesus in this in in the line of what you're talking about is about then starting to join in with the participation of what that kind of faithfulness to God's way of being looks like um, offers us, I think, a, a different just way of framing up the whole question, right? Because then the, the question of, well, then who's sort of in and out really kind of falls away when you start to frame up the Christological question in, in that framework because it, it stops making sense, um, to me at least. You know, the, the sort of question of, where, well, okay, where are the lines between the between the the Christians and, and and the rest and and the ones who've got the true faith and the ones who don't some of those some of those questions become less relevant I suppose when mm. when the nature of how we understand actually what Christ was was doing start to shift two things that were important to me in the book um, one is if our gos- if a gospel is primarily about what the sinner does receiving forgiveness then there's a whole lot of people who have to shove their experience of being harmed, violated, and their trauma in a narrative built for the guilty one mm. and not the one that bears shame and pain, mm. right? And so there's a whole chapter that is really kind of dealing with that um, and, and 
underneath the, you know, this kind of widening of what salvation is to include all the different experiences we have uh, for an open relational thinker is that if God is giving God self, right, self-investment, then the story of salvation is not an exchange in which God has no uh, you know, metaphorical skin in the game. Mm. God has given God's self to the world, refused to be God without us. And as the God of love, moment to moment, God shows up offering us grace for what's been and grace for what's coming, possibilities. And then we'll do it again. And so I, um, I am optimistic on the salvation question because the infinite God of love will never cease to be faithful. Mm. Uh, in the other side of that is I, I think the teachings of Jesus really fix a lot of bad theology. Uh, for example, um, if you pray for your enemies with a group of Christians long enough, you don't ask the question anymore, will Gandhi go to heaven? You know? Yeah. Like in, in usually when people ask that, I always say, ask the question. It's like, well, do you believe Jesus said to pray for your enemies? Like, yes, yeah, in the Bible. How many times have you done it? What do you mean? Well, what if you do it every day intentionally for a month with other Christians and you talk about what it feels like to do so? And then by the end of it, see if you still want to ask the question. Because I think that Jesus understood, this is why he gives stories and dodges to theological questions, mm. is he realizes we can't think our way into the truth. So much of it we get at by showing up in the right places and giving ourselves to the right, right. work. And, uh, and, and so this participatory image to the book, I think, is really me trying to hint at that. Yeah. Uh, but it comes from my time as a minister and trying to figure out, you know, how you communicate it. And sadly, it meant most people did not need really brilliant theological talks from me. <laughs> hey, thanks, Trip. I really appreciate your time. And uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Great conversation. I, it, you got great questions. And uh and I'm more than happy to talk more about it. Or if you play this and then people have questions and stuff, because uh, uh, I, I enjoy your podcast and I appreciate uh, more people creating religion podcasts that don't suck. <laughs> Good. Well, um, yeah. There's, there's not always a lot of company. There's a lot that do the, suck. I'll say that. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Hey, hey thanks heaps. And we'll uh, talk again, I think. That'll be great. Okay. All right. Awesome. So there you have it. There is my conversation with Dr. Trip Fuller, and uh, I really appreciate him taking the time to talk on the podcast. I hope you found that interesting, insightful, or deepening the conversation for you. As I mentioned in the intro, I'm going to be picking up a bit of this conversation in the next episode and trying to unpack what any of this might actually really mean for our lived lives and whether it matters or not. So Look out for that in the next episode. Until then, thanks as always to Reese Michelle for his massaging, manipulating, and quality control of the audio sound experience of this podcast. I'll see you next time on In the Shift. <laughs>